our theme during the Advent season has been, uh, What Child Is This? And so our reading this morning is taken from the Psalms, Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way, therefore he will lift up his head. Psalm 110, the Lord bless the reading of his word. We've been answering the question, what child is this? The question is one of identity. Who is that baby in the manger? And we've been answering this question by referring to the first chapter of the book of Hebrews. First three verses, this great introduction to the book of Hebrews. The book of Hebrews, I guess if you wanted to give it a title, one of the most common titles given to the book of Hebrews is the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And so we start with this great declaration, this great preamble to this book of the supremacy of Jesus Christ, which reads like this, God, having spoken long ago to the fathers in the prophets, in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and exact representation of his nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And we've observed from this text seven facts about the identity of this child. We've talked about five of them so far, and today we're going to talk about the last two. The first fact is that this child in the manger, this baby in the manger, is the speech of God. The very word of God made flesh, as we read in the book of John. And so if we were to ask the question, what does God say? The answer lies in the manger, in the child that was born. The answer is Jesus 
And the writer of Hebrews sets up a contrast between the partial and occasional speech of God in the Old Testament through the prophets to the fully realized speech of God in the person of the Son of God. The very incarnate Word. In fact, the whole Bible is the story of God's revelation in Christ. The only way to understand the prophets of the Old Testament is to see how they point to Christ in the New Testament. So that's the first fact. The child is the speech of God. The second fact is the child is the conclusion of all things. In these last days, God has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, Everything wraps up in the end in Jesus. If we ask the question, where is everything headed? What is the destination of human history? The answer is Jesus. We notice that he says in these last days, another way of translating that would be to say it like this, here at the end of days, God has spoken in his Son, whom he has appointed the heir of all things. On that day when Jesus was born in Bethlehem and his mother Mary laid him in the manger, we begin to see the conclusion God's answer. Then we also read here in these last days, he's spoken to us in his son whom he appointed heir of all things through whom also he made the world. So he's at the end of history and at the beginning of history. The Lord Jesus, the son of God, the eternal son is the agent of our creation. The beginning Oh, like it says right in the text of Revelation, the Alpha, the Omega, the beginning and the end. If we ask the question, where did everything come from? The answer is Jesus. And we saw the fourth fact, this child, this baby in the manger is the perfect revelation of God in humanity. What an amazing thing that that's even possible. That God can be fully represented in a human person in the Lord Jesus. We read he's the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature. If we ask the question, what is God? The answer is Jesus. And we see in his arrival under the conditions in which he arrives, that our God is a God who can exercise great humility, something we don't expect from God. And he's not done just when he is born, is he? He's going to exercise humility as a man among men, and he is going to end up in last place 
When Jesus said, whoever should be first, whoever wishes to be first, must put himself last, he, that wasn't just hyperbole or some kind of metaphor or figure of speech. <clears throat> it's what he actually did. And we read in Philippians, he put himself last and God has made him first highly exalted him and given him the name above every name. And we'll say more about that. If we ask the question, what is God? The answer is Jesus. And then the fifth fact was that Jesus is not only the beginning of the story and the end of the story, he's the one who carries the story from its beginning in him to its conclusion in him. He is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. And that word upholds might sound like he just acts as a support, like he keeps it from coming apart. He sustains it, but the word literally means to carry, to carry from one place to another. And so he carries Everything from its beginning in him to its conclusion in him. He's before all things, as we read in Colossians, and in him all things hold together. If we ask the question, why does the earth keep orbiting around the sun? Why do electrons keep orbiting around neutrons? Or what does the force of gravity have in common with subatomic forces? I don't even understand that question. The answer to all of these questions is Jesus. He's not just the beginning of everything and the end of everything. He's the sustainer of everything. If we ask, how does history get from creation to consummation, the answer is Jesus. History is not a series of random collisions. It is a story written by a sovereign God from the hand of the eternal Son of God, who we know because he arrived that day in Bethlehem, becoming one of us. So this brings us to fact number six. He's the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. He is our cleansing sacrifice. The blood that lit up the face of that little baby in that shed in Bethlehem is the same blood that was poured out on the cross to purify us of sin. We ask the question, how can sinners stand in the presence of a holy, righteous God? The answer is Jesus. In Hebrews, the writer gets to this by noting that Jesus is our great high priest. 
priest is someone who represents you before God. And of course, in the Old Testament system, the priest was the one who offered sacrifices on behalf of the people to God. And one of the really central concepts in the whole book of Hebrews is the superiority of the priesthood of Jesus when compared to the priesthood under the law, the priesthood of Aaron, the Levitical priesthood of the Old Testament. So I just wanted to review a little bit about some of the things this, this book of Hebrews says about this priest and his sacrifice, our cleansing sacrifice. In chapter 2, verse 17, Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in, things, in the things of God to make atonement, propitiation, satisfaction, for the sins of the people. That word propitiation in this translation, you could translate reconciliation, atonement, satisfaction, or you could say he invoked mercy. What should a righteous God do with a sinful human? death. Jesus satisfies God's justice. He atones for the sins of the people. In chapter 4, We read this, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession, for we don't have a high priest who can't sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Jesus has been tested as a man. The Son of God, the Eternal One, has been tested as one of us. And so is our High Priest who does sympathize with us in our weakness. In fact, His experience of temptation was more challenging than yours. Because he resisted it all the way. Never sinned. We alleviate the suffering of temptation by giving in to it. He never did that. He understands what it means to be tempted better than you do. So he's sympathetic to your situation. So we have this kind of high priest so we can come with confidence before the throne of grace, which is, because of him, a throne of grace 
and not a throne of judgment. In chapter 5, verse 6, we read this. Just as he says also in another passage, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Well, we read that passage that he's referring to in Psalm 110. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek, you know, there's only one, one appearance of Melchizedek in the whole Bible except for this. And that is in Genesis, Abraham runs into this guy, Melchizedek. Melchizedek is the king of Salem. Another name for Salem is Jerusalem. And way, way back before Jerusalem was Jerusalem, it was Salem and Melchizedek was the king. In fact, his very name means prince of peace. <laughs> king of Salem, prince of peace. In fact, for all of these reasons, many theologians believe that Melchizedek is an appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ. He's a priest to Abraham, and uh, the writer of Hebrews makes a big deal out of this by showing that because Jesus is a priest in the order of Melchizedek, he is therefore superior to the priests in the order of Aaron. He's the priest of priests. And of course, we read here, he's a priest forever. Well, in chapter 17, in chapter 7, verse 17, we read this. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. And he goes on to make a big deal out of the fact that he's a priest forever. He says in verse 25 of chapter 7, Therefore he's able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. You see, the priests in the order of Aaron died. So you had to have a new one. And you had to keep having a new one. And they had to keep making a new sacrifice day after day after day after day after day after day after day to the end of their life. And then another one would take over and it's day after day after day after. They had to keep making sacrifices. And here we read, he's a priest forever. He saves completely. He Did you catch it? He always lives. He's the risen, ongoing priest in the very household of God. The, temp, the earthly temple was only a shadow, a picture of the house of God in heaven where Jesus presents himself a sacrifice for sin and that is a once and for all, forever and ever, amen. 
done and done sacrifice. And he continues to serve before the throne of grace as your great high priest, as we already read. Representing you before the Father. And so when you come before the throne of grace, it's a throne of grace because you are in Christ, behind Christ, between you and the judgment of God is the cross and the empty tomb. He's a priest forever. He's risen and remaining. He saves completely. He saves to the uttermost is one translation of this. In verse 27, he says, he goes on, who does not need daily like those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people because he did, this he did once for all when he offered up himself. He saves completely. He saves once and for all. And the sacrifice this high priest makes is himself. He's not only the priest, he's also the sacrifice. In chapter 9, verse 14, i got to read verse 13. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse, cleanse, cleanse your conscience. That's the word he made, purification for sins. He cleansed your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. He so takes care of your sins, it cleanses your conscience. Cleanses. The comparison in the book of Hebrews is to is a is a comparison of purification of sins compared to covering of sins. Purification of sins is a once and for all done and done thing, covering, I'm going to sin some more tomorrow and I'm going to need that covered. And I'm going to need the next day covered. And I'm going to need, and the priests go on and on and on and on and on. This is once and for all, once and for all. In verse 26 of chapter 9, he says, Otherwise he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now, once at the consummation of the ages, at the end of days, at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin. To put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. In chapter 10, verse 14, we read this, For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. 
You almost get tired of the writer of Hebrews saying this. It's like he says it 17 different ways. Once and for all, taken care of, purified, cleansed, put away. Done and done. We are perfected for all time by the sacrifice of this high priest. This cleansing sacrifice. It's not a covering sacrifice, it's a cleansing sacrifice. In chapter 1, the writer is setting us up for all this. When he says, when he had made purification of sins. He's drawing a contrast between the fully realized atonement of Jesus and the not fully effective sacrifices of the Old Testament. And the difference is purification. Jesus made purification of sins on the cross. The sacrifices of the Old Testament law only provided temporary covering. Jesus' sacrifice actually removes your sin. We also want to notice something else here in, in this opening verse, made purification. It's in the middle voice. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> A little, little Greek grammar here. It indicates what we call a reflexive idea. In other words, you need something like the word himself in here. Jesus made himself purification of sin. So he's not just the priest, he's also the sacrifice, as we've seen. And it's right here in the grammar of this sentence. Jesus made himself purification for sins. He makes the atoning sacrifice, and he is the atoning sacrifice. And there's no way for anyone to survive the revelation of God in Jesus except by the sacrifice of Jesus. Jesus is the one who will return one day and judge the world and pour out the wrath of God on all sin. He's the revelation of God. And the only way we have to escape the danger is his own sacrifice. He's the cleansing sacrifice. The seventh fact is this. This child has now earned his place as God's right-hand man. It's in this text, when he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. If we ask this question, how does God exercise his sovereign rule over all things? The answer is Jesus. The Son of God is the executive of the Father. Jesus is God's right-hand man. Now, the Son of God has always been the right hand of the Father. Now, Jesus is. One of us is. 
when he had made purification. The one who made purification is the man Jesus, and the man Jesus is now seated at the right hand of God. He earned his position there, the man. This is a description of, of events in the life of Jesus, the man, when he had made purification for sins. We are not governed by a remote God. We are governed by one of us. Who is by his sacrifice. By his sacrifice, he earned his throne and made us governable. He subdues his people. Now, you might have noticed, if you were really paying attention, that in this text, Hebrews 1, 1 to 3, Jesus is revealed in his three stations as a mediator between us and God. First of all, he's a prophet. He's a prophet. The speech of God. Thus says the Lord, what comes after, thus says the Lord, is Jesus. Jesus is what the Lord says. He's a prophet. He's a priest. He's the one who represents us before God as a prophet. He represents God to us. He's the exact representation of God to us. As priest, he represents us to God. And he does so bringing the once and for all perfect sacrifice of his own life. And then he's king. He is seated at the right hand. He ever rules. Now, there's something I want you to notice about all of that. And that was in that verse we read in chapter 2, verse 17. He had to be, had to be made like his brothers in every respect to become a merciful and faithful high priest. In fact, all of these stations of Christ Humanity required. If he's never the baby, God remains unknown to us. Jesus himself said that. If you, if you know me, you know him. If you don't know me, you don't know him. He's the speech of God. He's the revelation of God. If that child is not born, we don't know God. If there's no baby, we remain alienated from God in sin. There's no sacrifice. There's no high priest. 
We just are under God's judgment in sin. Without a child, the incarnation is absolutely essential. And if there's no baby, there's no king. These are functions the Son of God operates in his humanity. Seven facts. Jesus is the speech of God. Jesus is the culmination of all things. He's the initiator of all things. He is the full revelation of God. He carries history from beginning to its conclusion in him. He's our cleansing sacrifice, our great high priest. He's earned the position of God's right-hand man, the king of kings. That's who that baby is. How do we respond to this glorious news? Well, the book of Hebrews has an answer. It's in chapter 10. Well, one version of the answer is in chapter 10. A couple weeks ago, we looked at another version of the answer, which is pay attention to Jesus, which is repeated throughout the book of Hebrews. And here, here's another answer that gets repeated throughout the book of Hebrews, chapter 10. I'm going to read this. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is, his flesh, And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us, what? There's three things to let us do. Let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean, remember, purifying sacrifice, from an evil conscience, And our bodies washed with pure water. Let us draw near. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. What's the basis of your hope? The promise of God. Is God trustworthy? then hold fast. He who promised is faithful. And third, let us consider one another to stimulate love and good deeds. Not forsaking our assembling together, like some people do, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Those are the three things. Hold fast. I'm sorry. Draw near, hold fast, consider one another. Draw near to God because you can, because of the sacrifice of Christ. You can pray. You can look to God. You can regard God as your Father. He regard, He will regard you as His child. Draw near. Hold fast 
There's a, another way of expressing this in English. Nail down. This word literally means fasten yourself to the hope that you have in Christ. Fasten down the confession of our hope. Where does your hope lie? We put our hope in all kinds of crazy stuff. Fasten down this hope. The Lord Jesus Christ gave himself a sacrifice for sin and is seated, as in he's done working, seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding for you, promising to return for you and to give to you the completion of your salvation in him in the very resurrection of your body from its mortal condition. He is the one who promises he is faithful. Get that down. And then think about the other people around you. Exhibit this hope to them. Consider the people around you in order to stir up love and the consequential good deeds. Don't forsake the fellowship of the body, but encourage each other. Well, what is encouragement in the body of Christ? Christ. The good news of God's grace in Christ. Now, we've already said this. Pay attention to Christ. Help other people pay attention to Christ. That's what they need. Whatever their other problems are, and by all means help with those as well, but whatever their other problems are, this is their problem. Attention to Christ, trust in Jesus, obey Jesus, help each other do the same. At Christmas, it seems to me we have a unique cultural opportunity for this. At Christmas, people pay attention to Jesus who can help. Because here's the thing, the Jesus people pay attention to normally Well, it's not a very full vision, is it? It's a sort of romanticized baby in the manger whose head is a light bulb, who glows, and it's, oh, so sweet. The real Jesus is the Jesus of the book of Hebrews, who humbled himself to be one of us and among us humbled himself to give his own life a sacrifice for our sin who stands between us and a righteous God who makes God's love available to us again for real who sustains us in his grace every day, every day, 
every day, who ever lives to make intercession for us. It is not some romantic, glowing baby Jesus. It is the Savior of the world that every human being desperately needs. Tell them who the baby is. Tell them who the baby is. The speech of God, the creator, sustainer, and conclusion of all history. The complete revelation of God, the great high priest and atoning sacrifice who finally deals with all your stupid nonsense sin. God's right hand, the king of kings who will rule in righteousness. That's who the baby is. Go ahead and tell people. Go ahead and tell them. Father, we give you thanks. <laughs> it's just about all we can do. Your goodness to us is beyond our imagination. This deep, deep mystery of the incarnation of the eternal Son of God in one person, in one person, reside the eternal God and perfect humanity. We thank you for his ministry to us to reveal God to us, to give his life a sacrifice for sin, to be our king forever. We thank you for these things. Amen.